Good morning, First Baptist. Good morning, Pastor. On June 5th, 1978, a young seven-year-old boy fell into a rushing river in front of about a dozen or so adults. And those dozen or so adults watched that young boy perish without any of them jumping in to save them. This was the Prairie River uh, in Canada. <clears throat> there was a reason that none of those adults jumped in. It's because just up the river, there was a plant that was pumping raw sewage into the river. And to jump into that river would have been a hazard to the health and the well-being of anybody that would have jumped into that, that putrid and disgusting water. Now, when I hear a story like that, the first thing that comes to my mind is what would I have done? Surely the only thing they needed, right, was for Chad to be there. <laughs> he would have jumped in. He would have saved the day. But if I'm going to be completely honest, there's something deep down in me that a story like this brings to the light. It's something that scares me. It's something called selfishness. And frankly, when I look at your pictures on Facebook of that fabulous vacation that you went on, I may have clicked like. I may have even clicked love. But the truth is, I really wish I could have been there instead of you. <laughs> and that new car you got that you put on Facebook, again, I may have liked it or loved it, but I'd prefer it would have been mine. Because you see, there's this thing called selfishness that dwells deep, deep inside of me. Now, it's something that most parents, I think, try to train away from their kids, right? It's a, considered a, a negative, selfish, sinful kind of trait that parents are trying to get out of their kids. And what's really interesting is very few of us are even willing to admit that we're selfish. Now, they did a study of this. They do a study of everything these days. In 2015, a Pew Research poll revealed that 68% of us say the term selfish applies to the typical American. In 2014, another survey was done. 71% of adults believe that millennials, ages 18 to 29, this would have been five years ago, so 20 to 35, they said that 71% of them are selfish. And 71% of millennials agreed. <laughs> However, only 17% said that they tended to be overly concerned about themselves. But 60% think that most, people are o most other people are overly concerned about themselves. See, we're very reticent, we're very hesitating to ever say that we ourselves are... Se it's everybody else's problem, but it's not mine. See, if people only understood my circumstances, they'd know that I'm not selfish at all. This is something that other people deal with and not me, and that's an issue. Because this can become a huge obstacle in being a servant of God. Our selfishness, materialism, being over-concerned with other, what other people have and what we don't have. So there's this condition that can keep us from being 
like this young woman that we're about to read about today, a woman named Mary. And what I want to unpack this morning is, in the light of this life, Mary, how can I be Christ's servant? With my problem with selfishness, with the issues that I have, how can I be a servant of Christ? Today we'll be in Luke chapter 1, we'll be looking at verses 26 through 38. Luke 1, 26 through 38, please stand with me for the reading of God's word. In the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent from God to a city of Galilee named Nazareth to a virgin betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph of the house of David. And the virgin's name was Mary. And he came to her and said, Greetings, old favorite one, the Lord is with you. But she was greatly troubled at the saying and tried to discern what sort of greeting this might be. And the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. He will be great and will be called Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David. And he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and of his kingdom there will be no end. And Mary said to the angel, How will this be, since I am a virgin? And the angel answered her, that The Holy Spirit will come upon you. And the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the child to be born will be called Holy, the Son of God. And behold, your relative Elizabeth in her old age has also conceived a son. And this is the sixth month with her who was called barren, for nothing will be impossible with God. And Mary said, Behold, I am the servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. And the angel departed from her. You may be seated. Well, here we are. We've got the lighted white trees on the stage. And you know what that means. We're in the full swing of Christmas now. We're starting a new series today called The Characters of Christmas. We're going to be walking through three different Sundays, looking at this cast of characters that we see in the Christmas story, the coming of Christ. And this morning we're going to look at this passage I just read to you in three, three movements and first, we'll see that good news arrives at a particular point in time. Then we'll see that good news upsets. And we're going to try to get into the shoes of this very, very young woman. Mary, Mary may have only been 12 years old when she got that news from that angel. And then finally, we'll talk about what does Mary's example teach us about being this highly favored servant. We'll bring it very close to home and talk about those traits that we would really want to adopt that Mary has. Let's start out with this arrival of this good news. The timing is impeccable. We see it here in these first two uh, chapters, verses that we read, rather, 26 and 27. In the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent from God to a city of Galilee named Nazareth, to a virgin betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph of the house of David, and the virgin's name was Mary. Let's just pause there for a second. This was a monumental moment in history. For 400 years, God had been silent. That intertestamental period between the Old Testament and the New Testament, it was called the silent years. 
After the prophet Malachi had spoken, there was a long, long wait. Kingdoms would come and go. The Babylonians, the Persians, the Greeks. Romans are now in charge. And all during that time, people were wondering, God, where are you? What's going to be the answer to all these Old Testament riddles about a program changing, a Savior coming, a day of the Lord? When is that all going to happen? Now it's happening. It was about 2,020 years ago that all these events start to go down. This is the second appearance of the angel Gabriel. In the, in the earlier parts of the chapter, uh, Gabriel had appeared to Zachariah and Elizabeth. Zachariah was a priest. They found out that they were about to have a child in their old age, and now he's appearing to Mary. It was like a lightning bolt out of a clear blue sky in an obscure place. It was in this region called Galilee, in this place called Nazareth. Nazareth was not a great town. It kind of reminds me of a place called Mudsuck, West Virginia. <laughs> Why they would name a, a town Mudsuck, I have no idea. Or Booger Hole, West Virginia, for that matter. <laughs> yes, you can Google it. Don't do it right now. There's a Booger Hole, West Virginia. I know Wyoming, I'm sure, has none of those kinds of towns and cities. But yeah, it was, it was a place you're almost embarrassed to say you were from. And the angel came to a virgin betrothed. Now, a betrothal is like a step beyond an engagement. The arrangement had been made. Finances had been exchanged. Witnesses were there to say that these two are together. Mary was betrothed to Joseph. Kind of a done deal. As a matter of fact, oftentimes they would go ahead and start referring to the young woman as wife of so-and-so if she had been betrothed. And as the text says, it was in the sixth month, a reference to the length of time of Elizabeth's pregnancy, Elizabeth who Gabriel had come to earlier, Elizabeth who was going to give birth to John the Baptist who would prepare the way for Christ. But Christ came at the exact right moment. He, he didn't come late. He didn't come early. He came at the exact right time. After centuries and centuries of waiting, now the time had come. You know, waiting is a discipline that Christians will often neglect. But waiting is what we probably do more of than anything else. I can remember as a child, waiting with anxiety at Christmas time. Am I going to get that Atari? Are we going to get that VHS VCR this year? Am I going to get that stuff that was on my list? As you get older, there's other kinds of waiting. Am I going to get that job? Am I going to get that wife, that husband, that boyfriend, that girlfriend? How is this all going to play out? And as you get older, there's also other kinds of waiting. What's that diagnosis going to be? Am I going to make it through this year? Are my wayward children going to speak to me again? So there's this patience that we have to be able to live with. Don't rush into a bad marriage. 
don't rush into a bad job. If you have the opportunity to wait and be patient on a big decision, do it. I was thinking about two women who uh, were on their way out of church, two women named Gladys and Rhonda, and they were talking to each other, talking about what the afternoon plans were going to be that Sunday. And, and Gladys looked at Rhonda and said, I really enjoyed that pastor's sermon on patience. And the other woman answered, yeah, but he went five minutes long. <laughs> patience, waiting on God's time, waiting for him to do what he's going to do when we can. Sometimes we have to make a decision. So God's news comes at a particular point in time, and then we see that the news upsets. The news upsets. And we go on to this next set of verses. And the angel has come to Mary. She, he, he speaks to her, and we see her reaction starting at verse 28. And he came to her and said, Greetings, O favored one, the Lord is with you. But she was greatly troubled at the saying and tried to discern what sort of greeting that this might be. Now she'd heard some wonderful things. She's standing in front of this angel. Who in the world knows what it would be like to stand in front of an angel, by the way? As I mentioned, she could be as young as 12 years old. And she's perplexed. She was told that God was with her. She was the object of his grace. But what in the world was he going to do to her? All of these wonderful things are explained about Christ, she's told not to be afraid again. Uh, she's found favor with God again. She's told she'll conceive and bear a son named Jesus. He will be son of the Most High. He's going to have a kingdom without end. Nothing will ever stop the kingdom that Christ has come to bring. And then she has an obvious question in verse 34. And Mary said to the angel, how will this be since I am a virgin? The angel answers her in verse 35. The Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the child to be born will be called Holy, the Son of God. Let's stop there for just a moment. How will this be since I am a virgin? Could be translated, save what? What did you just say to me? What in the world are you talking about? Now, she was betrothed to a man named Joseph. And if you ever heard of something called the Holmes-Ray Stress Scale, it's a modern-day stress scale that they put together to determine just how much stress do particular events put on a single person in their life. Okay? Uh, for example... Some, the death of someone close to you has a particular value they place on it. And a score over 300 on that stress scale usually means that someone's going to be medicated or hospitalized. Now let's just take a quick look. If we were to bring this whole ordeal into the modern times and, and analyze this in, in, in terms of stressors today, this is how it would look. She probably thought she'd be separated from Joseph. That's a score of 65. Those are called life change units. 65 life change units. Marriage itself 
is 50. And think about what Mary and Joseph are both going through here. Being reconciled, Joseph, he doesn't divorce her. That's a 45. Pregnancy itself is a 40. Adding a new family member is a 39. Change in financial state. They would have lost everything because of this sort of scandalous pregnancy that the community would not understand. Trouble with in-laws, 29. Change in living conditions. They would have been cast out in all likelihood. Change in working conditions. If the community would have bestowed shame upon them for getting pregnant out of wedlock, it could have changed their working conditions. They would have had to have moved away. The church would have abandoned them. They wouldn't be welcome in social settings. They would have had some change in sleep habits in all likelihood. Not to mention a minor violation of the law. She could have technically been stoned for getting pregnant outside of wedlock. That brings the total score to 435. That this 12-year-old girl and her betrothed may have been experiencing at this time. Again, anything over 300 will typically put somebody on medication or hospitalization. Think about her situation. On the one hand, yeah, we look back and say, well, this is one of the greatest privileges ever bestowed on a human being. We know that in hindsight. But this would have been enormously difficult in this day and time. The father knew she was the one. And then how did she respond to all this? We see it in verse 38. Behold, I am the servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. And the angel departed from her. Packaged in that phrase is a whole, whole lot. I would call this a deliberate, intentional form of passivity. And what does that mean? See, the Bible is full of these commands that are passive. And to really get Christianity, you have to get this this form of command or an imperative that's also passive in nature. So what does that mean? Christmas is coming up, and if somebody were to command you to say, be foot massaged, that's a command. It's the same one. You're not the one doing the action. The Bible has these kinds of commands. Be filled by the Holy Spirit. Be transformed by the renewing of your mind. And see, to understand this is to understand how God works. See, we often think, should I do this? Could I do this? But these commands cut right to the no, do this. Do this. And I love the way some guys have explained this idea of a passive command. Uh, one guy says, this is how kings speak. It introduces a crisis into your life and thrusts a decision upon you. It is a line in the sand that determines, based on your response, your relationship to the throne. How Mary would respond would determine how she was going to relate to God. And this has everything to do with our attitudes as Christians when the crisis comes. We're called by God, and then the news hits, and our hearts drop. And we're called to ultimately adopt an attitude of trust 
and commitment. And like a child who may be momentarily angry by something their parents told them to do, down the road, by the grace of God, someday, hopefully, you and I, we see, okay, they knew what they were talking about. This was an act of love. And eventually comply, even if maybe, maybe, it could be years later, down on a heart level. See, this is what God is looking for. There's one more quote that comes to mind. This is by a guy, his name's uh, Cranfield, and he wrote a, one of the best commentaries in the book of Romans. He said the use of this passive imperative, to use his example, be transformed, is consonant with the truth that while this transformation is not the Christian's own doing, but the work of the Holy Spirit, they nevertheless have a real responsibility in the matter. To let themselves be transformed, to respond to the leading and pressure of God's Spirit. The transformation is not something which is brought about in an instant. It has to be continually repeated, or rather, it is a process which has to go on all the time. The Christian is in this life, all through our life. Crisis after crisis after crisis is going to come. And what are we called to do? We're called to be transformed by it. We're called to be renewed by it. God is changing us. And it's our job to have this attitude of Mary. Lord, I'm your servant. Let it be done. This is the attitude of the servant. And I want to bring this closer to home. Um, I want to talk about specifically Mary's example. Mary's example and, and what this means for you and I. You know, it, it didn't have anything, her, her being highly favored had nothing to do with her education. It had nothing to do with her socioeconomic status. It had nothing to do with her appearance. All the things that we tend to elevate, it had nothing to do with any of that. And we've got this highly favored servant. I want to mention four ways, four takeaways from this example of Mary. First is availability. Just being available. And what does an attitude of availability look like in the 21st century? Do you and I have room in our life for the unexpected? Or does anything that's unexpected immediately become an unwanted interruption? I came across the story of a guy named Colin Wilkinson. He's a businessman. He found himself so tied up with things all day long, he, de he decided to do something revolutionary. Instead of coming up with a to-do list, he came up with a not-to-do list. And he looked at his life. As a matter of fact, he sat down and made out what he would call the worst work day he could ever have and looked at the things on that work day. Things like meeting with people he didn't trust having no unscheduled times. So we made up a not-to-do list. What would your not-to-do list look like? What is something that you spend too much time doing in any given day? I can tell you what mine is. It's called the Internet. It's called my phone. If I was to come up with a not-to-do list, the first thing would be do not spend more than X amount of time. I'm not going to tell you what my time is. <laughs> Online. Put a limit there. Make, make time a priority that you spend on things not only that you know God would have you to be doing. I hope prayer is a priority. 
I hope time in the Word's a priority. I hope that fellowship with other Christians is a priority. But then just adopting an attitude of availability so that if you are interrupted, when the crisis comes, and it's going to come, that you won't be waylaid by it. So be available. We don't have any idea what Mary was doing when this angel showed up, do we? We knew that she was God's servant. Secondly, be responsive. Be responsive. Mary had the right response. Use me as you will. I will not refrain from serving you just because I may feel unqualified. Notice she didn't say that. She had a big task. Jesus Christ was about to be her son here on earth. What opportunity has presented itself to you that you have not taken advantage of? What desire do you have that you believe God's not big enough to help you fulfill? How are you responding? What crisis have you received that has waylaid you that you have not taken the time yet to bring against the word of God? To talk to the right people about it. Are you missing out on a chance to be an encourager? You know, sometimes just offering a loving response to someone, you may say something to someone, a simple word of encouragement that they will not forget the rest of their life. So be responsive. Third, be courageous. Be courageous. God is not going to call you to do something that he's not going to prepare you to do. He's going to prepare you to do those things which he's called you to do. That doesn't mean it's going to be easy. That doesn't mean that you may not feel afraid. But if we're going to attempt to share our faith, if we're going to attempt to teach truth, all of these things, they're going to take courage. They're going to take courage. We align ourselves to the scriptures, and oftentimes it means, oftentimes it means confronting the culture in which we live. There's a quote by Martin Luther. Um, talking about the subject of courage. And he says, If I profess with the loudest voice and clearest exposition every portion of the truth of God except precisely that little point which the world and the devil are at that moment attacking, I am not confessing Christ. However boldly I may be professing Christ. Where the battle rages, there the loyalty of the soldier is proved. And to be steady on the battlefield beside, and to be steady on all the battlefield besides is mere flight disgrace if he flinches at that point. Where is the culture most intolerant to your faith? See, that's where the battle's being waged. That's where we truly make a stand for Christ. That's what we were called to, by the way, when you were called to this thing called Christianity. You were called to take the stand. We can't bow and cow to the culture around us, ever. We're called to be bold, like Mary was. Every piece of her experience that she was going to live out was going to challenge that world around her. And finally, be trusting. Be trusting. God is going to bring difficult and hard times. He's going to bring unwanted circumstances. And frankly, the miracles are not always going to come like we want them to. 
If you've been to any of our grief share classes, you've been introduced to a woman by the name of Nancy Guthrie. Uh, Nancy Guthrie, she and her husband uh, are, are in ministry, and after having a child named Faith for 199 days, they lost her when she was 199 days old. They both thought that being people of faith, it would lessen their pain until they both confessed to each other that being people of faith, they didn't think did lessen their pain. They felt they hurt just as much as anybody else would have. They said that it kept them from despair. But this is what she says about her pain. God allows good and bad into our lives, and we can trust him with both. Trusting God when the miracles don't come, when the urgent prayer gets no answer, when there is only darkness, this is the kind of faith that God values most of all. It's not in the easy times. It's not when the easy answers come. It's in those 400 years of trusting that those, those Jews had to do for all that time, waiting on Christ to be there. And she goes on to say that she hopes that short life of that child glorified God. So putting all this together, be an on-track servant, T-R-A-C, a trusting, responsive, available, and courageous. Be trusting, responsible, available, and courageous. In closing, I want to tell you the story of a priest named Father Damien. Uh, Father Damien was known for having moved to Hawaii to live in a small village of lepers. And he moved there and he lived with these lepers. And it had been a place that was thought of that you just go to to die. But he changed all that. As a matter of fact, he made it a place that people went to to live. While he lived among these lepers, uh, he started a school there. He started a band and a choir and all kinds of things that nobody ever thought would fly in a leper colony. And also while he, while he lived there, he took very little care of himself. He would oftentimes let the, the lepers smoke the same pipe he was smoking. This was back in the 1800s. He would bind their wounds with no thought to himself. And eventually, as you can imagine, he himself contracted leprosy. And after he contracted leprosy, he began a sermon with two words. We lepers. Now, he wasn't just helping them. He became one of them. From that day forward, he wasn't just on their island. He was part of their island. First, he had chosen to live as they lived, and now he would die as they died because they were in it together. See, this is the story of Christmas. Jesus came to earth, and he became one of us. He wasn't just helping us. Now he's in our skin. And now we're in it together. And ultimately he would die like one of us. Please pray with me. Almighty God, I pray that we would, to the depths that we are capable of, understand what you did. Lord Jesus, you came to earth to die for our sins. It was the only way. It was the only way we would ever be reconciled to the Father. It was because of your gracious, 
act of sacrifice. I pray that we would have that attitude, that we wouldn't live for just what's around us, what we can see, but we would live for this unseen kingdom, one that has no end, one that's going to go on forever and ever. Lord, let us set our hearts there. Let's be there in that place that's beyond pain and beyond death. Until then, God, give us the courage to live out this time on earth that you've given us. In the name of Jesus we pray, amen. The Lord shall preserve you from all evil. It is he who shall keep you safe. The Lord shall watch over your going out and your coming in from this time forth forevermore. Today is the day where we take up our elder offering. Uh, you'll see some men by the back doors with plates. If you can, please contribute to that. I usually hang out here at the platform. I've actually got to run to a meeting. Uh, thank you so much for being here today. You're dismissed.